Hey everyone, and welcome to Data Brunch with ICPSR. If you love data, this is going to be food for thought. I'm Dory. And I'm Anna. We are recording these episodes live from our remote offices, so please excuse cameos from canine colleagues, kids in class, and other unexpected moments. Welcome back to Data Brunch, Dory. Welcome back. It's good to be back. You know what? We have a great season in the works and everyone listening, we'd love to hear from you. We have two new buttons on our website, one for suggesting guests and topics and the other for giving us feedback. We would love to hear from you. You can also use the hashtag data brunch to tag us on social media. So this season will be a little bit different, and for our longtime listeners, we would love to hear what you think. Um, and wow, do we have an incredible guest this week. And we have something special at the very end for those who stick with us after the interview. We sure do. Um, so some quick business up front. Like Dory said, after the interview, um, we'll be highlighting some new data, including a new transgender study that's just come in. Um, it's the TransPOP data, and we could not be more excited. Um, but for now, if you're listening to this episode at a later date, you can always visit icpsr.umich.edu to see our current job listings and upcoming events. And I'm going to mention a few things right now. Um, first, we are hiring and as of this recording, we have eight job openings, including a research analyst and software engineers and more. And we will link to those in the show notes. And we do want to invite you all to join us for our virtual conference, which is taking place in October 2021. And that conference is all about data doing good. And we have presentations on data ethics and diversity, equity, and inclusion data. We have practical resources. We have some amazing guest speakers. So please do join us. Um, if you haven't yet, you can sign up for our email newsletter, and we'll give that link in our show notes um, to get registration information. This conference is free, and it's open to the public. Um, and you can also register by just going to our homepage of our website, and you'll find a link there. Um, and I also want to let you know we have some upcoming webinars. Uh, there's going to be one about using GIS data. Um, there's a really interesting one about research on higher education. Um, they're going to talk about psychological theories of student engagement and what goes on in college classes. Um, and there's a few others. There's a lot of webinars coming up. So you can register for those on our homepage. So up next, we are so excited to have this incredible guest with us for our first episode of the new season. Um, over the last couple of years, we have just fallen in love with this chart looking at bias in media. Um, it's something that all of us nerds over here at ICPSR have, have really gravitated towards. And we are so excited to have the creator of that uh, come on and talk to us about the data behind it and just how important it is. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to you, Dory. Welcome back, everybody. This is actually our first episode of season two, and we are just starting off large, okay? <laughs> so, so we have with us today, Vanessa Otero, 
who is creator of the Media Bias Chart and also founder and CEO of Ad Fontes Media. Welcome, Vanessa. Hi, thanks so much for having me today. And because today's conversation might take a little bit of a different structure, I just want to make sure you know we have some uh, guests in the virtual room with us. We have ICPSR's Jenna Tyson, who is a multimedia designer. Hey, Jenna. Hi, everybody. And then we have ICPSR's Anna Shelton. Hi, everybody. So we're here. We are here to talk about the pretty amazing media bias chart. And so I have a little bit of a disclosure to make. So for almost 20 years of my life, uh, I spent time as a newspaper journalist. And so, of course, I am very interested in this, <laughs> in this chart. Uh, my priors are the Detroit Free Press, the Boston Globe, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and uh, the Tampa Bay Times. So I know where they all are on the chart. Excellent publications, <laughs> rated very highly on our chart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, and it's interesting. And so uh, one reason why I'm happy that Jenna is here is if you if you work in the media, the things that are in the media bias chart, it's kind of second nature. So you might not really think about it as you consume other media. You pretty much know where people fall, you know. But um, it was really cool when my colleague Jenna uh, said, hey, I found this really cool resource. And I was like, oh, yeah, I know about that, you know. And so, Jenna, if you wouldn't mind, I want to hear your story about how you were introduced to it. And then that'll lead into our questions for Vanessa. Sounds good, Dory. I don't know if I can remember exactly how I stumbled across the bias chart, the media bias chart, but it was when I was trying to navigate um, you know, like leading up to the presidential election and um, all of the, the Black Lives Matters stuff and the um, COVID stuff and trying to find sources that weren't biased, basically, or I, I was looking for accurate information and I came across the media chart and it's actually changed my life. Because now I, I use AP News or, or Reuters, and that's where I get my news. And if I see something crazy or something that makes my anxiety spike, I think, you know what, let me check on AP News or Reuters. And then if it's not there, then I'm like, okay, let me check again on... Um, you know, like Snopes or some of those places that talk about these crazy things that you see on Facebook. And so that's kind of how I came in contact with it. And I've been recommending it to so many people because like, it's just so hard to find reliable, unbiased information. Thank you, Jenna. So it sounds like you have something in common with Vanessa, who um, a patent attorney was was hearing friends fight over the legitimacy of sources during the 2016 election. And just sounds like, Vanessa, you just got frustrated and did something about it. So tell us about that. 
Yeah, I mean, in, in the run up to the 2016 election, but the specific thing that bothered me was, you know, people fighting with each other very ineffectively on social media, particularly Facebook, by throwing uh, links at each other from sources that they thought were reputable, um, and then they would fail to convince you know, whoever they were arguing with because the other person would just dismiss it as biased. And in a lot of cases, it was. I thought, I just wanted to talk to my friends about the news and this concept that some news sources are more reliable. Um, and, and sure, there's like, there's what people refer to as fake news, uh, but there's sources that are sort of in the middle of that. There's a lot of opinion and analysis content out there. Um, and then there's left and right things, but then there are things that are way out there and extreme. Uh, and as a patent attorney, I knew that, uh, you know, I explained things in words and pictures, but pictures really drive a lot of understanding for folks. So um, as you said, Dory, um, you know, if you're in the media, you're like very media savvy, you're exposed to a lot of different news sources, you sort of understand that different sources fall in different parts of the landscape uh, intuitively, but uh, not everybody does, right? And so it was, uh, I was sort of shocked at how popular this got when I created this as a hobby uh, I'm a, as I like to say, I'm a huge nerd, uh, which is why, as a hobby, I was making pictures of the news landscape, um, you know, at, in the evening while my day job was a lawyer. So, uh, yeah, it just it got really popular, and I sort of just got pulled into this line of work. So, this being data brunch, I was really struck by a description on the Adfontes website that says, and I quote. Junk news is like junk food. And just like junk food has caused massive health epidemics in our country, junk news is causing a massive polarization epidemic. I just That just really stuck with me. And um, do you want to expound on that? Yeah, junk food and uh, and junk news. Uh, this uh, analogy, I think, is, is really apt because, you know, in the uh, 50s and 60s, when there was... Uh, all of a sudden, you have uh, leaps forward in food processing, which solved one problem, which is, um, you know, uh, food insecurity and uh, and like storage and cleanliness uh, issues. But then all of a sudden, you know, we had more calories than anybody really needed, right? So it wasn't until years later where we re realized like the adverse health effects of that. And uh, I think we're in a similar space now with junk uh, with junk news. Like we've got a massive proliferation of uh, information that we've never had to deal with before, which is great and ultimately like a net benefit. Uh, but we're in we're experiencing these growing pains of having to deal uh, a deal with like how to process more information than we than we've ever had available to us at once. So for information, you know, we're at these early stages where we're learning, okay, what's, um, what, what's good, okay, and bad uh, as far as like information, how do I discern that? And then how do I demand it? Uh, how do like the, the publishers that produce it, you know, they've got incentives, uh, people uh, like it, they get the dopamine hit from bias confirming junk news. Um, so 
how do we how do we break those cycles? So I think there's corollaries to healthy diet and exercise, like healthy information diet, and what I like to call civic exercise. You know, um, doing things like uh, voting and volunteering and talking to real people from that you disagree with. You know, those are like forms of civic exercise. And in addition to cleaning up our information diet, I think we can uh, Im- we can improve where we're at and uh, and adapt to the information environment that we're facing right now. Awesome. I could not agree on that stuff more. And oh my goodness, could we have a whole other podcast talking about food? Because this yeah. this is, yes, right up my alley. So as a fellow self-professed nerd, um, I, you're bringing up some interesting questions for me about kind of how you do develop your own data. So could you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about how you collect your data and how do you make sure that your own data and your own analyses are not biased? Yeah. You yeah, that was sort of the first thing we had to wrestle with. Well, I had to wrestle with by myself when I just created this as a hobby and everyone uh would ask a couple of things. That uh one of the things they would ask for was like what what the data is and what the methodology is and you know, could we rate some more uh some more news sources of course. And then they'd say, "Well, hey, uh isn't this biased because you're biased?" And I thought, "Oh yeah, that's true. I am biased cuz I'm I'm a person." Hmm. How do we how do we solve that? And uh, you know, <laughs> I really wanted to make this this better. Like as soon as I saw it got popular, because people were using it in schools, and that's sort of a lot of uh, responsibility. Uh, I came from a uh, you know a legal background and was in law school, and I uh, appreciate you know the rigor that goes into like academic uh, publishing. Um, so you know, I I wanted to make it a, like it, I set out on making this as good as it could possibly be. So I knew that that would in, need to involve like better samples, like controls for uh, how we select our samples, um, and then ultimately diversity across you know all the relevant domains, uh, which is you know certainly uh, political affiliation, diversity, and then across you know uh, gender, race, age, and other abilities. You know all, all sorts of things that um, you go into people's experiences because you know, people come to the news with their own subjective experiences, right? So, um, in especially like the, the political diversity, uh, because we're rating a lot of, you know, political things on the left-right spectrum, uh, it's very important to people to know that we're being as fair as possible with that. So we, uh, it, the first multi-analyst uh, uh, ratings project uh, we did in uh, we, in 2019, and I uh, recruited a group of about 20 analysts, and uh, we spent a few months getting our first big sets of a few thousand articles. We had about 7,000 articles total, and a little bit over um, you know 120, 130 uh, total news sources. And we, uh, I, I developed a content analysis methodology. I, I developed a taxonomy for, you know, what is at the top and what's in the middle and what's at the bottom of the news landscape. And um, there's a lot that, that goes into that. Um, there's, you know, certain principles of, you know, of, of uh, journalism and law and philosophy that you know went into like why something's good, why something's okay, why something's bad. So ultimately, at the top, we put the work journalists do up there uh, in the original fact reporting and fact reporting. Right below that, there's a section called um, complex analysis and analysis. Now, analysis is still really good, and some of the best news sources uh, are are in that section right there. But the the reason we put you know 
the fact reporting collection of information and reporting of information at the top, the work that journalists do is because the analysis couldn't occur without it. Right. So it's we need that at the top of the news landscape. And so below that is a opinion. It's still, you know, usually based in truth, um, you know, not not lies, but it's still opinion, not as valuable. Everybody's got them. Uh, and then below that are things that are problematic. Below that, things that are misleading. And below that, things that are um, inaccurate or fabricated. So um, most people, you know, that makes sense to most people. And then the left right is like a contemporary U.S. left right spectrum. But how we I could dive into each of these uh, each of these topics, but with our analysts, uh, uh, I, I created a methodology where we um, you know, how I first created it was by going through um, articles and uh, individual sentences, individual headlines, and pictures, and trying to pick out like for each of these what are the things that um, make us value them um, in uh, on, on each of these domains, and we broke it down into um, things like expression, like his expresses fact analysis or opinion. And then veracity. Everyone thinks of like reliability as like, you know, fact, factfulness or truth or something like that. And we, um, it's ultimately the veracity scale, um, which uh, condenses a lot of those principles. But then there are other things like uh, the headline and graphic and how well those match up to the article. So those are really our main factors um, for, and there are some other sub factors. And then for bias, uh, sub factors are political position, language, uh, like how you refer to your opponents or how you refer, refer to an issue, and things like comparison, topic selection, and omission. So there's a number of different sub factors in there. Train the analysis, uh, analysts on each of those, and they give you know scores for each one, and then they give an overall reliability and bias score that's numeric. So we have like a yeah. You know, somewhat arbitrary seeming scale from zero to 64 for reliability and minus 42 for plus uh, to plus 42. It's basically eight categories for reliability and seven categories uh, for bias. And ultimately how we, you know, come up with our overall source ratings is we'll take a representative sample of the web web source or the TV show or the podcast, because now we do um, all those uh, different mediums. And, you know, we, the sort of the minimum for articles is like 15 articles, but uh, the bigger sources that we've got, we've got hundreds of articles rated uh, for those. And the overall source score is a weighted average of those sample articles. So uh, it's a weighted average because we weight really low reliability and really high biased scores heavier. Uh, that... Because when people come across a piece of news or news-like content that is misleading or problematic or fake or extremely biased, that weighs very heavily in the minds of the people who are consuming that news source. So, you know, New York Times opinion articles or Wall Street Journal opinion articles are going to impact the, uh, the overall view of the bias of that whole source. So you were talking about, um, like, you went through... Um, articles and podcasts, and you'd look at um, photos and all this sort of stuff. And I just was wondering when you're looking at photos and you're rating for, you know, some of these different categories, how can, can you give us an example of what that would look like? Yeah. The, I think the most uh, common example is a highly unflattering picture of an opposing politician. 
that that's sort of the the main one that would contribute heavily to um, to bias. Or uh, another example is if you're talking about um, like uh, like topic selection um, or, or omission. It, uh, we noticed this a lot um, last year when there were you know protests over the summer in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. Um, you know there if the paper wanted to focus on like violence, destruction, and looting, and you know, have a picture of like you know a burning building and cars uh, you know overturned. Uh, that's that's a different uh, focus and has a different meaning for bias than a picture of like a large group of peaceful protesters walking down the street in the middle of the day. That's a great question, Jenna. That's another one of those things that. It's like second nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost like a hobby. When I, read, <laughs> when I read the headline and I see the picture or I see the picture first, mm-hmm. I already know what, what, the, he- what mm-hmm. the headline is going to be based on whether the person is smiling or sad mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, it's a gotcha moment or they look confused. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. it's interesting. Yeah, it, it's so interesting. So I was going to ask you, you know, why does bias in the media even matter? But I, I think that you've kind of addressed that. And I think that that's something that we know intrinsically, but it's interesting to be able to identify it. But then, you know, kind of following up on that, um, you know, if we got this right, so say that, you know, say that everybody was, was checking this out and looking at the media bias chart and only paying attention to the, you know, the least biased places, um, if we had that more media aware consumer, how would that really, how would that change things? Like how would people's lives be different? Well, I think we see the the problems um, of, of the opposite of like having a non-savvy uh, or non-information literate um, electorate society um, right now. Um, if people can't discern good information from bad information, uh, it affects our very lives uh, and our, our health. I mean, it's, uh, people say like, what's, you know, what would be the worst thing that could happen if, uh, you know, this misinformation problem continues? I don't really think it needs to get any worse. Like, I think it's already been about as bad as it can get. Like, 700,000 people have died in the pandemic that did not have to be this polarized or politicized. Um, people literally stormed the Capitol to like try to undo the election based on misinformation. Right. So uh, that's pretty bad. That's pretty, that's pretty dire. And the other real life consequences of, of polarization, you know, I, I, I feel like um, polarization is, is the main thing that's uh, the, that is a main problem that's exacerbated. I mean, not that like there wasn't polarization before there was media. Like there have been periods of of polarization before, right? We didn't need Facebook to like have the civil war. You know, there was uh, it, people have been polarized, but um, it, it's a I think it's an accelerator. Um, you know, the information the environment where we just have like uh, we, we get sucked into these bias confirming loops uh, and become you know. Uh, really resistant to information, to new information that might um, uh, that might cause us to shift our beliefs because they're so they become so tied to people's identities. So uh, since you know 
a polarization and identity and like the political decisions and like the life decisions that you make are, are so often uh, tied up together. Um, you have people that just, for some reason, they've decided that they are, um, you know, pro, you know, a- against vaccines and pro like any other um, treatment that's floated out as a possible um, cure whether it be like vitamin D or uh, hydro- hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, just because it's like um, going against a grain and they just see value in like going against, uh, against a grain. So what could it look like if, um, you know, more people um, you just focused on better information, like getting, getting better information? Well, you know, I, I think what that would look like is, um, more people being okay with the fact that problems are complicated and uh, require complex solutions and just being able to like sit in that for, for a little while. That it's not, things aren't so binary. Things aren't so like uh, my side versus, versus your side. Um, you know, having things be binary and polarized uh, is a way of simplifying things and like coping with all the information that we've got in the world. I mean, that it's a coping mechanism. It's hard to deal with like, all the problems in the world. So if you could just say like, all right, my team believes this and I'm just going to stick with that and I don't have to think about it any, any further. That's, that's easier. It's, it's more difficult. It's more uncomfortable to say, Oh, we don't know what the, the solutions to these problems, like how to you know get past this pandemic or how to solve healthcare or how to solve immigration or how to solve uh, you know, a number of these problems that we face. So if uh, I think if we move towards people complexifying their thoughts a, a bit uh, and complexifying the, their understanding, um, that, that would be a good thing. So I have a question. Um, I, I know that we're running short on time, so I, I'm trying to be respectful of that. And I, I have a thousand questions. But one thing I'd love to know very quickly is, you know, what are some, some things that people could look out for when they're reading a news article watching a news broadcast, looking at their social media, what are some quick tells that, uh, that people could be looking out for um, to, to see that bias quickly? Yeah, great question. Uh, if something uh, makes you, you know, Jenna, you said when things make you really anxious, Right. So if something stirs a uh, like a strong emotion in you, either really positive or really negative, um, that yeah, that's a that's a good signal. Um, and you know, we're we're consuming information really quickly, right? Especially on TV. Like there's so much coming at you, like visually and uh, auditorily at the same time. It's sort of like remember when you first started driving? It's like wow, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of information to take in. Um, but then over time it becomes second nature. So sometimes we just let this information, especially on cable news, just wash over us. And we just like ingest it and accept it. Right. It's really helpful to just slow down and think about like, what is like just the expression itself of the content? Is it expressed in a bunch of like fact statements? Is it a, is it expressed more as like analysis where they say like, here's a fact, but then here's a conclusion or some inferences and statements of meaning about that fact, or are they just spitting out opinion after opinion, after opinion, after opinion. Um, and I think just recognizing, uh, that, uh, those distinctions between, um, let, let me give you uh, examples that you can bring to mind immediately. You watch your half hour nightly news on, 
the major uh, networks like ABC, NBC, CBS, um, or PBS NewsHour, they will cover like 12 to 15 stories in 30 minutes, which does not leave a lot of time for you know opinion and analysis. It's just like, this is what happened, this is what happened, this is what happened. If you watch CNN, Fox, MSNBC, you can watch it for like six hours and hear four stories and 38 pundits, right? So that's a lot of uh, analysis and opinion content. It's further away from news. It's cheaper to produce. It's like it's like the junk food of, food of news. It's like the donuts and fries of the media landscape. Like, yes, it's delicious and satisfying and it's, you know, technically food, but not the most nutritious. Thank you. Way to bring it full circle. <laughs> the junk buffet. <laughs> How can listeners find out more about this or contact you? Uh, go to our website, which is adfontesmedia.com, A-D-F-O-N-T-E-S, media.com. Um, you'll see our static media bias chart and our interactive media bias chart. And we provide uh, all sorts of uh, resources for individuals, schools, um, and you know other use cases for our data because, you know, that, that's what we're here about, right? Data. We have news news reliability and bias data um, that's uh, unique in the world and can uh, help a lot of people navigate the news landscape. Okay. Well, a huge thank you to you, Vanessa. This is an honor. Uh, we are we are biased. We like the media <laughs> bias chart. <laughs> I mean. Can, can you imagine the the kids learning this in school? how they will be when they get our age, what kind of media consumers they're going to be. So kudos I, to you. Uh, I hope so. You know, uh, and on a hopeful note, you know, I, I feel like it's, it seems like we're in a tough time right now, but just like uh, a generation can learn uh, to be, go from illiterate to illiterate in just one generation. Um, so can a society learn to uh, go from media illiterate to media literate in one generation, as long as it's taught in the schools. So that's what, what we got to work on. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks all. All right. Thank you so much, Vanessa, for joining us. Um, we do want to tell you about some new data that's come in over the summer and we are so excited to have the TransPOP study come to live at ICPSR. And if you haven't heard of the TransPOP study, this is the first national probability sample of transgender individuals in the United States. It does also include a comparative cisgender sample. Um, and we have a really great recorded webinar on kind of how to use these data and why these data are important. And that's on our YouTube. Um, so we'll put that in the, in the show notes. Please do check that out. And while we're talking about a national data set, I wanted to note a new entry in the ICPSR bibliography. An article in this month's issue of Pediatrics talks about baby's first years. And the principal investigators describe the study's goals, design, and data collection, along with its potential contributions to science. According to the authors, Baby's First Years is the first randomized controlled trial in the United States that is, quote, designed to identify the causal impact of poverty reduction on early childhood development. Awesome. I can't wait to see what people do with these new data. 
Um, so that is the end of the episode. Thank you so much for being with us. If you aren't already, subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell us what you like to hear by filling out the feedback form on our website and share your thoughts on social media using hashtag databrunch. And thank you, as always, to the over 700 members of ICPSR. This podcast would not be possible without all of you. And we want to give a warm shout out to our newest members, the Western Economic Association International. And thank you to our producer, Scott Campbell, in the background. You can get in touch with us by visiting our website, icpsr.umich.edu, or emailing us at icpsr-podcast at umich.edu. You made it! We promised you something uh, for everyone who stuck with us this far. So, Dory, tell them what they won. Yay! You have won an opportunity to show us how you date a brunch and become ICPSR famous! <laughs> we'll be giving away some ICPSR swag to someone out there. Here's how you get it. Take a picture and tag us on social media using hashtag databrunch or send us an email at icpsr-podcast at umich.edu. We can't wait to see it. I'm Anna. And I'm Dory. And thanks for joining us at ICPSR's Data Brunch. <laughs>